0: Welcome to My Cousin Jane, a podcast about Jane Austen and her works, with your host Lee Phelan. Hey everybody, welcome back to My Cousin Jane. So as always, we're going to be taking a look at the life and works and writings of Jane Austen through a lens of sort of the deleted scene slash bonus features point of view, just pointing out things that'll enrich in and deepen your understanding and appreciation of some of the things she wrote about in her novels. And today we're going to be looking at Persuasion, Chapter 3. So when this chapter opens up, we are still with Sir Walter and his family and Mr. Shepherd talking about who we could rent out Sir Walter's house to. And Mr. Shepherd brings up the point that since this is a time of peace, there are a bunch of rich young naval officers that are coming onto shore that would be ideal tenants. And there's some discussion about this, but I want to talk a little bit about this idea of the peace. So as we talked about in chapter one, this is the tail end of the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon is in exile at this point. This is right before the Hundred Days War when he briefly kind of makes his encore, encore performance trying to rally the troops, so to speak. But at this time period, British naval superiority has been established. Uh, The wars are basically over. And one of the people that they talk about as being an ideal tenant is a man named Admiral Croft. And they're talking about who's Admiral Croft, and they're trying to figure this out. And there's some connections to some other people that we'll talk about here in a minute. But we get this little glimpse of of the fact that Anne is a big naval aficionado. And it's pretty interesting because the first three chapters... You know, Anne Elliot is the protagonist, but she only says like two or three sentences in the first, you know, in each of the first three chapters. And one of the things we learn about her in this chapter is that she really keeps up with what's going on with the Navy. So during that time, there were two ways that people largely kept up with what was happening with the wars and with the Navy in particular. One was a published series of uh, booklets called The Navy Lists, and this would kind of detail who the different naval officers were, what their ranks were, what ships they were stationed with, stationed on rather. And also, uh, the newspapers would often run stories about battles and officers and things like that. And so Anne kept up with this for reasons uh, that are obvious if you've read the novel already, but we'll talk about in a little bit. And one of the things that she mentions is the fact that they're trying to figure out who Admiral Croft is, and she says he is a rear admiral of the White. And that is a naval rank. So during this time period, the Royal Navy was divided into three squadrons based on color. And in order of seniority, it was Red Squadron, uh, White Squadron, and Blue Squadron. Now, these squadrons would kind of also, which color squadron it was, also determined how it would line up during battle. The red squadron, the kind of commanding squadron would be in the center. The white squadron would be the vanguard or the front lines, and the blue squadron would be in the rear. And within each squadron, you had different ranks. So in, and this shifted a little bit right before the Regency era. But basically, there was one person in charge of everything, and that was the uh, Admiral of the Fleet. And he commanded Red Squadron. That was where he commanded from. But there was also, within Red Squadron, there was the Admiral of the Red, and then we had a Vice Admiral below him, and then the Rear Admiral of the Red. Then, within the White Squadron, you also had Admiral of the White, Vice Admiral of the White, and Rear Admiral of the White. And then similar for Blue Squadron. And so basically the way the ranking system worked is you had uh, the main admiral of the whole fleet, followed by the admiral of the red, admiral of the white, and admiral of the blue in that order. Then you had all the vice admirals of the red, white, and blue squadrons, and then the rear admirals of the red, white, and blue squadron. And so Admiral Croft is rear admiral of the white. And Anne mentions that he became rear admiral as a result of the Battle of Trafalgar. Now, this was a major military victory for the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. Basically, Napoleon had decided he was going to wipe out the British fleet. He was going to invade England. And so he gets um, all the French Navy and the Spanish Navy combined. And they launched this big attack. And it was, the British ships were outnumbered 27 British ships against 33 French and Spanish ships combined. And despite this uh, being outnumbered, uh, one of the interesting things is that the French Navy officers did not have anywhere near the same level of competence as the British Navy, as the Royal Navy, and that was because a lot of the French naval officers had previously been part of the aristocracy and were royalists. And during the French Revolution, all of those people were either killed or exiled or you know went into hiding. And so the people who are in command of the French Navy. Are fairly incompetent compared to the Royal Navy at the time, and so Admiral Nelson uh, basically wipes out the combined French and Spanish fleet. Didn't lose a single ship on the British side. French and Spanish fleet lost 22 ships. Um, Admiral Nelson, the commanding the British fleet, is shot and you know fatally injured during the uh, t- during the battle, but uh, a decisive military victory and basically establishes British naval superiority from this point on until World War II. Again, kind of the interesting takeaway from this novel is that Anne uh, kind of kept up with all this. She knew that at what Admiral Croft's rank was. Uh, she knew how he'd achieved that rank. So this is just a really interesting kind of glimpse into what Anne's point of view is, what she is interested in. And we know why she's interested in the Navy if you've read the book, but we'll talk more about that. Now, Sir Walter, uh, he Unlike Anne, so Anne's feelings about the navy are pretty clear. She thinks that they are just great people, naval officers, and this mirrors Jane Austen's own feeling about naval officers because two of her brothers were in the navy, and in fact, one of her brothers, Francis, became actually admiral of the fleet, and so Anne was very familiar with naval life, very had a very high respect for naval officers, and that comes out quite a bit uh, in the novel *Persuasion*, also to some extent in *Mansfield Park*, but not nearly as much. As it does in persuasion. And we'll see that and we'll talk about that as we go through some more of those chapters. Now, Sir Walter, on on the other hand, unlike Anne and unlike Jane Austen, did not have very kind feelings about the Navy. And the main reason for this is because, again, Sir Walter's main concerns are about physical appearance and the importance of rank. And we talked about that in chapter one about the irony of that. But let's hear his points of view about the Navy and why he doesn't like that.
1: "'The profession has its utility, but I should be sorry to see any friend of mine belonging to it.' "'Indeed,' was the reply, and with a look of surprise. "'Yes, it is in two points offensive to me. I have two strong grounds of objection to it. First, as being the means of bringing persons of obscure birth into undue distinction, and raising men to honours which their fathers and grandfathers never dreamt of. And secondly, as it cuts up a man's youth and vigour most horribly—a sailor grows old sooner than any other man—' I have observed it all my life. A man is in greater danger in the Navy of being insulted by the rise of one whose father his father might have disdained to speak to, and of becoming prematurely an object of disgust himself than in any other line.
0: And so Mr. Shepherd then goes on to assure him that Admiral Croft is, you know, a very respectable gentleman, and he got a great physical appearance, and Sir Walter starts to come around to this idea. And Mr. Shepherd then tries to tell him, oh... By the way, his family has some connections here. His wife is related to someone who used to live here, and they can't remember who it was, and Anne knows who it is, and she mentions it's Mr. Wentworth. And he says, oh, yes, her brother, Mr. Wentworth, the curate of Monksford. And Sir Walter brings out this distinction, because when Mr. Shepherd was trying to describe him, he says, oh, yes, it was a gentleman who lived here. And Sir Walter says, oh, you mean the curate of Monksford? You misled me by the term gentleman. And again, this phrase, gentleman, didn't just mean someone with good manners. It meant literally a member of the landed gentry, someone who had land and received their income through tenant farmers. And so Sir Walter does not regard the curate of Monksford, someone who had to work for a living, as a gentleman because he was not a wealthy landowner. And we will hear this. So if we look at Mrs. Clay, we're going to listen to a clip of Mrs. Clay, kind of a little iteration of different professions. And this will kind of underscore people that today you might look back on and think, oh, they were gentlemen, they had good manners and such and such. But here's a list of people that were not considered gentlemen.
1: The sea is no beautifier, certainly. Sailors do grow old betimes, I have observed it. They soon lose the look of youth. But then Is not it the same with many other professions, perhaps most others? Soldiers in active service are not at all better off, and even in the quieter professions there is a toil and a labour of the mind, if not of the body, which seldom leaves a man's looks to the natural effect of time. The lawyer plods, quite careworn, the physician is up at all hours and travelling in all weather, and even the clergyman—she stopped a moment to consider what might do for the clergyman— And even the clergyman, you know, is obliged to go into infected rooms and expose his health and looks to all the injury of a poisonous atmosphere. In fact, as I have been long convinced, though every profession is necessary and honourable in its turn, it is only the lot of those who are not obliged to follow any, who can live in a regular way in the country, choosing their own hours, following their own pursuits, and living on their own property without the torment of trying for more.' It is only their lot, I say, to hold the blessings of health and a good appearance to the utmost. I know no other set of men but what lose something of their personableness when they cease to be quite young.
0: An ideal lot to strive for indeed. Mrs. Clay kind of outlines again the fact that all of these people, doctors, lawyers, um, clergymen, they are not considered gentlemen in the aristocracy's usage of the word. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is this point That Mr. Shepard brings up about Admiral Croft, and he mentions the fact that he occasionally takes out a gun but never kills, referring to hunting. Now, during this time period, hunting is really interesting because the only people that were allowed to hunt were the aristocracy. And if you owned land and you had the money, you could have a gameskeeper, and his main job would be to raise game for you to hunt pheasants, uh, grouse, things like that. But if you were a tenant farmer on the land and these, this game was attacking your fields you and kind of causing trouble for your crops, you were not allowed to do anything about it. In fact, if you were caught poaching, uh, this was a very serious offense. So if you like went out and said, oh, my family's starving. Look, there's a pheasant. I'm going to go eat it. Well, that pheasant probably belonged to a wealthy lord. And if you were caught, and in fact, Roald Dahl wrote a really funny book about this, Danny, the Champion of the World, kind of about the dangers of pheasant poaching. And if you went out in a group to go poaching and you were caught, it was very severe penalties. In fact, you could be exiled to Australia, according to some historians. And so this was a big deal. And so one of the things that landowners would often do is they would want to invite friends over to go hunting. And so they were allowed to do what was called deputize. And they were able to deputize their friends to give them the authority to hunt on their land. And so when Mr. Shepherd said he would be glad of the deputation, what he means is Admiral Croft knows he has no right to kill any of the game on the land, but he would be glad to be given that authority by Sir Walter. So just an interesting sort of term. All right, so that wraps up everything I want to talk about for Persuasion Chapter 3. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Navy and the connections to Jane Austen's family next week when we look at Chapter 4. But if you are a big fan of uh, the Royal Navy or just really interested in this idea, I highly recommend the book Jane Austen and the Navy by Brian Southam, who is a big Jane Austen scholar. And it just goes into detail just about the Royal Navy at the time period, its effects and, you know, Jane Austen's interactions with the Royal Navy, as well as how it's portrayed in uh, her novels. And there's some, some really interesting connections in there that if you find this kind of stuff interesting that I really recommend that book. And you can find it on Amazon. I don't think you'd be able to find it at an independent bookstore, but you can find it on Amazon, kind of imported. You can find it in the UK pretty easily. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to help support the show, please head over to my slash MyCousinJane, sign up for our newsletter, or click on the little donate button. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.